0: This week on the Science of Politics, How Presidential Debates Influence Voters. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. We're past two sets of presidential debates with dozens more to go, but the polls don't seem to have moved. So when and why did debates change voter views, and how did they help Donald Trump last time? Rather than paying close attention to the policy positions of the candidates, voters may just be responding to their jokes or insults, if they're watching at all. And it turns out that post-debate commentary may have more influence than the debates themselves. Today I talked to Ethan Porter of George Washington University about his paper, Presidential Debates in the Age of Partisan Media, with Kimberly Gross and Thomas Wood. They asked people to watch the same 2016 debate on either Fox or MSNBC, some with and some without the post-debate commentary. They found that each channel, with their immediate verdicts on who won and lost, influenced voters. I also talked to Patrick Stewart of the University of Arkansas about his new PS article, Please Clap, with Austin Eubanks and Jason Miller. He finds that everything from the in-person crowds to the moderators to the split-screen images to the channel producing a primary debate can all matter. Candidates go after applause lines and laughs to reach voters and create meme-worthy moments. Both are going up against the conventional wisdom that debates might not matter. Porter says that's usually right about vote choice, but their evidence does show some real effects. The scholarly wisdom in general
1: is that, you know, you know, single media events are unlikely to do much, right? Because uh, the scholarly consensus is that media effects, if they exist at all, are likely small, even though the public attaches great importance to, to debates. You know, in millions, you know, 70 million people watch them. It's not clear that debates actually change anybody's mind, right? So maybe debates matter because they're fun to watch. Maybe debates matter because they're informative. But on this basic question, which, you know, is, you know, do debates actually, you know, affect who people vote for? There's very little evidence that debates do just that. And, and, and you know, there's, there's, you know, there's good reason to believe, given the, the mounds of, of research on small media effects, that any single debate in any single post-debate coverage isn't likely to affect most voters' attitudes. That's sort of the scholarly wisdom, I would say, although, you know, I don't think it's overwhelming by by any respects, and you know, what do we find? We find a few things. We find first of all, that this, you know, this is I I think slightly against some, you know, if if scholars believe that media is literally incapable of affecting people, right? Right, that that on average we're gonna observe zero effects across every outcome, then then our results might surprise you, right, because we find that actually on several evaluative measures of Trump and Clinton, that you know the post-debate coverage did make a difference, right? That maybe undercuts some some what you might some scholarly expectations. On the other hand, we were never able to find evidence that post-debate coverage was able to affect vote choice, right? Which is really important, and after all, what the candidates themselves
0: are trying to do. Stewart says the changing media environment means TV debates matter more, at least in the primary. Since he's been watching in 2008, winning candidates have connected with voters on TV.
2: I do a lot of nonverbal communication. I'm a facial action coding system, a certified coder, and a lot of my research looks at facial displays. And I look at how people respond to facial displays. The charisma that is there is a really interesting question for me because it oftentimes drives who we choose as our leaders, not necessarily our policy preferences. And certainly partisan identity plays a major role. But when we're looking at the primary debates, that's before we get into the partisanship. So this is where we really find some interesting decisions and some interesting questions being raised is during the primary debates, there is no party identity tied with these candidates within the choice we're choosing within the party and we're seeing which one fits our idea of what a leader ought to be so i think that's one of the key things is no longer are we looking at the invisible primary we're looking at a highly visible and highly volatile primary in which case we can look at certainly going back to 2008 when i started my research where Barack Obama essentially came from uh, nowhere. He was not a part of the party apparatchik. Uh, Hillary Clinton was the one that was supposed to be the president at the time, and he effectively utilized this to uh, launch himself into the presidency. On the other side, the Republican side, in 2008, it was certainly John McCain. He was the one who had worked his way to that point, But what was most fascinating is that Mike Huckabee was able to establish himself as a national figure, doing great part to his humor and his ability to elicit laughter. So I think it's at that point that we're starting to see that in the primary debates, how important laughter is.
0: Porter studied the first general election debate in 2016 with an experiment, finding the channel that voters watch matters for their impressions.
1: It appeared that there was going to be a close election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Many popular prognosticators thought the debate was going to be pivotal in some way. Now, as I'm sure you know, in in political science, there's a, a fair bit of skepticism about the impact of the debates, particularly because we believe that, you know, voters make up their minds, you know, largely before exposure to any one media event. And it would be difficult to imagine that just one media event would change somebody's partisanship, right? It would actually affect something as deep-rooted as partisanship. You know, that was the sort of intellectual and popular context. What did we find? You know, we we randomly incentivized people to watch this this debate. And furthermore, we incentivized them to then watch post-debate coverage on either Fox News, which you know is generally seen as more conservative-leaning, pro-republican-leaning, or we incentivize them to watch the debate and post-debate coverage on MSNBC, which is you know generally seen as more liberal and more pro-democratic-leaning. The goal was to sort of figure out, look, um, you know, do these po- post-debate shows actually make a difference? And we found that to some extent they did. Those who watched MSNBC. Post-debate coverage, were significantly more favorably inclined toward Hillary Clinton along a whole range of issues, a whole range uh, along a whole range of measurements afterwards. And those who watched Fox News were more positively disposed toward Donald Trump afterwards on a whole range of measures. But we didn't find any effects on vote choice, right? So it seems like you know watching Fox, watching Fox's coverage of the debate, you know, might make you like Donald Trump more, but it doesn't seem like it will make you any more likely to vote for him. Um, And the same is true for MSNBC and and Hillary Clinton.
0: Stewart looked at how Trump won over voters in the primary debates last time through emotional appeals.
2: Well, what I did here is I did a content analysis with a couple of uh, students that were honor students at the time, but now they're Ph.D. students at the University of Kansas and at the University of Arkansas. And we looked at audience response and speaking time. And we were looking at applause, booing, and perhaps most importantly for myself, laughter. And what we found is that Donald Trump, well, he rather effectively utilized the audience to increase his status within the Republican Party. He was definitely the laughter candidate, and he was the applause candidate, and he was also the boo candidate. He elicited a range of different responses from the audience.
0: Let's dig into each study. Porter, Gross, and Wood compared the effects of coverage on C-SPAN, Fox, and MSNBC and their post-debate coverage over an extended time period.
1: So we ran a multi-wave design, as you said, where about a week before the debate, we recruited people over Mechanical Turk to, A, answer some questions, just you know, basic demographic questions, as well as their attitudes toward the candidates and the parties. And at that point, we also got their uh, availability uh, you know, could they watch TV on the day of the debate? We didn't, of course, say, can you watch the debate? Because we didn't anyways, want to, you know, affect them at this point. We didn't want the, the, the debate to prime them in any way. We also needed to know if they had cable news, right? We needed to know if people had access to Fox News or MSNBC. Once we found out who had access to cable news and who was available to watch the debate on the day of the debate, at the time of the debate, we then, you know, randomly assigned people to watch, you know. Either MSNBC, the debate on MSNBC and 30 minutes of the post-debate coverage on MSNBC, or the debate on Fox News plus 30 minutes of post-debate coverage on Fox News, or we also assign them to watch just the debate on Fox News, or just the debate on MSNBC, or just the debate on C-SPAN. The idea here was well, as follows, right? We wanted people to watch the debate on C SPAN to sort of provide a pure control, to watch the debate totally unaffected by any of the you know the bells and whistles that the partisan media channels bring bring to bear in a debate. We also wanted people to watch the debate just on MSNBC or just on Fox News without watching the post-debate coverage, because we wanted to see, first of all, if like people might adjust their responses to our questions because they anticipated something about what we were trying to, to get at, right? So, for instance, if we'd seen that people in the Fox News condition who'd only watched the debate on Fox News were more positive toward Trump, we'd be a little skeptical about that, and we might be skeptical about our results overall, we, we, because we might have triggered you know something called, you, know, you know, we might think of it as demand bias, where subjects in a survey experiment anticipate what you're doing and adjust accordingly. Unfortunately, we didn't see that at all. Again, as I've said, watching the post-debate coverage on a particular channel did really seem to matter as opposed to just watching the debate on a particular channel. The final advantage of the multi-wave approach is that we got to measure any long-term effects of the debate. Maybe, you know, the debate inspires supporters of the winning candidate for 24 hours and demobilizes supporters of the losing candidate for 24 hours, right? But it's very possible that you know, within a few days, another few media stories have come and gone and people are back to where they were before the debate, you know, which is, this is the kind of thing we're able to measure by, by employing a multi wave design that in turn allowed us to measure effects a week, a week
0: after the debate. People really did watch the debate on the channel that they asked, although a few might've watched post-debate coverage, even if they were told not to.
1: Perhaps the most um, compelling evidence of compliance comes from what I thought was a kind of clever test we came up with, where after the debate, we asked, we, we showed study participants uh, uh, rows and columns of pictures of uh, TV personalities associated with the, with the network that they've been assi- with, 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 the, with television networks, okay? Now, it turns out that after a post, after a debate, some specific personalities come and actually... You know, spout whatever it is they're spouting on air. Well, other personalities who you think are coming don't actually show up. We presented people with these images and we said, "Look, who on the channel you watched when you watched TV for this assignment actually showed up." Just you know, click on the faces of the people who who watched, right? And we saw a pretty, pretty, pretty good accuracy on this measure, right? So people who watched um, Fox News, for instance, were were were. Far better at identifying Megyn Kelly and Brett Baer's faces as being people that actually watched than, say, Charles Crowdhamer and Chris Wallace, who they hadn't watched and who, you know, weren't on the air. Similarly with Karl Rove, right? Karl Rove did not show up in the 30 minutes of Fox News post-debate coverage. We included his face anyways. You know, only 5% of Fox News post-debate watchers clicked on Karl Rove's face, right? Which is about, you know, the standard error rate that we have in social science. Point being, you know, people were generally compliant, you know, similar with MSNBC watchers. About 33% of people who watched MSNBC, you know, could recognize that Rachel Maddow was indeed on air as she was, while only about 6% said Chris Hayes was you know, or Lawrence O'Donnell, for that matter, they're both identifiable MSNBC faces, but we're not on, you know, on on the post-debate coverage. If you watch the Fox News post-debate coverage, right, or if we assigned you to watch the post-debate coverage, about a 0.33 probability, you would correctly know that Megyn Kelly was on TV, right? You said you saw Megyn Kelly on TV, and indeed, you were right, right? Now, if you watch Fox News, but we didn't assign you to watch the post-debate coverage, in fact, we specifically told you to turn off your television after the debate was over. You only said only 0. 0.13 probability that you would identify Megyn Kelly as, as, as being on your TV. Right? What does that indicate to us? That indicates that some people definitely watched you know, TV after we assigned them to do so, but not a lot, right? Not, not that many, not in the way that actually causes us grave concern.
0: They asked people lots of perceptual questions, not just who won, finding some broad effects when we ask who won the debate, right? We thought about this a lot. If we
1: ask people who won the debate, are we asking them who they think won the debate or are we asking them to kind of regurgitate the the mainstream media wisdom on this point, right? Um, this is something, you know, we're not really sure, right? We're sure some people interpreted it differently. Although, you know, again, we did various things to, you know, to help resolve that. And because we weren't entirely sure what the who won question meant, we asked all these specific questions about, the candidates perceived persuasiveness. Did they avoid gaffes? Were they presidential? Did they have command of the issues, right? Did they likely appeal to independence? Did they show they cared about people like me? And what we found was, was reasonably straightforward and consistent with our broader story, since that if you watch the MSNBC debate coverage, post-debate coverage, um, you evaluated Clinton more positively along all of these measures, right? Similarly, if you watched Fox, you evaluated Trump more positively around all of these
0: measures. Clinton was widely perceived to have won, but not for those who watched Fox News coverage. The people who watched MSNBC
1: were strikingly similar in their estimates of who'd won uh, compared to the MSNBC debate watchers, right? Which to us leads us to think that, you know, again, if you recall, like people thought Hillary Clinton had done better on this debate, right? And people who didn't watch any post-debate coverage thought so too. Right? So evaluations of Clinton were pretty reasonably high, except in this, you know, condition where you're watching the Fox News post-debate coverage, right? They really, you know, managed to depress attitudes toward along all these dimensions.
0: Fox even gave Trump extra time after the debate, not just skewed analysis.
1: Fox News didn't just feature a Trump surrogate making Trump's case. Trump was given control of the airwaves with a very friendly interview. By Sean Hannity immediately after the debate, right? So this is like this is, as you say, maybe Max example of, of 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 persuasion because after the post debate coverage, Trump was given an unfettered microphone basically to to share his message and redouble his message to listeners, which is pretty wild actually. And what did we learn from that? We learned that like you know, it made people think he did better in the debate, but like it didn't move people to vote for him. So this suggests, as you say, that maybe there's a ceiling on persuasion that can come through debates and post-debate coverage. And maybe there's this, you know, and I think oftentimes we overestimate Trump's political skills, right? You know, we frequently read into him as being some kind of political mastermind. And maybe he's just an ordinary sort of presidential level political figure. They're, you know, making him sort of talented and capable of persuading some people, but, you know, not shifting the fault lines of American politics in the the sense of actually being able to, you know, convert mass numbers of Democrats, you know, to to Republicans and and
0: so on. Porter says the Fox effect fits with other evidence. But there might also be broad MSNBC effects if people watch that channel as much.
1: This is an effect that has been written about for many years by many scholars other than us who have said, like, look, actually, Fox News is capable of increasing Republican vote share, right? You know, this is, you know, canonical findings in, you know, the media economy literature. We obviously don't have anything on vote, unvote, 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 share, vote choice here. here. But we do have evidence, though, attesting to the idea that Fox is an unusually powerful propagator of support and, you know, reasons to support the Republican candidate, right? So an interesting uh, result from the, the third wave that we found is that, even a third among moderate partisans, the effects were, were, were reasonably substantial a week later, which we think is pretty interesting. I and mean, Fox News depressed support among moderate Democrats for Clinton even a week later. Interestingly, you know, to also be clear, MSNBC boosted support for Clinton among moderate Republicans a week later, right? So, you know, there's, there, I think some of this is a Fox News story, but there's also a, a way in which, well, maybe Fox News effect is is mitigated, however slightly, by an MSNBC effect, right? Or perhaps that was the case in 2016.
0: Stewart says the study fits with his evidence because the key moments selected by the media afterwards are often those with the biggest audience responses.
2: The work that Ethan Porter and his colleagues are doing is important replication research. It's something that we've known for a long time is that spending beforehand and then uh, the framing afterwards uh, is really important for how people perceive, especially the general election debates. I think what's important, especially when we're dealing with so much information, is how it's framed afterwards in those memes. They're constantly replayed. And you know, it's it's difficult to watch all these debates, now, especially in the case of all these debates that we had in the previous electoral cycle. Now we've got fewer, but there's still a lot. It's two nights in a row. So being able to parse out that noise to see what are the key moments that tell us the most about the candidates. And humor is really telling as far as what the candidates are like. So certainly those meme-worthy
0: moments are very important uh, because people watch them again and again. He looks at verbal and nonverbal displays and how the audience responds to each comment.
2: The first way that I look at this is I look at the visual framing that it comes from the comes from the producers of the different networks and how they visually present the candidates. So that's really the first joint. Speaking time certainly matters, but how do you present the candidates? And that's uh, another recent article that I've had building off some incredible research by uh, Eric Busey. The second thing I'll look at is, well, how do the candidates use their time? And so that's the facial displays, the nonverbals, and the linguistic aspect. The third thing is what we're focusing on right here in this discussion is, well, how does the audience respond to the candidates? And that right there is most fascinating because by cutting the speaking time into such small chunks, you have to be pithy. You have to have those meme worthy moments in which case you develop, you assert yourself as the candidate for the public to pay attention. Right now, we have 20 Democratic Party candidates. It is hard for me, and I'm a political scientist who does this for the living that I do to keep track of them. So certainly they're being able to stand out on the stage to not just political scientists such as you and myself, but also to the media and the general public becomes really important.
0: Stewart says Trump established himself in 2016 through his debate response.
2: The Fox News debate in Cleveland was immense for Trump. It established him as a candidate. The first debate everyone was watching, he didn't make a fool of himself, but more importantly, people paid attention and treated him with respect, with applause and laughter that mattered. So by the next debate, which was held in the Ronald Reagan Library and was very much more of an elite crowd, was one that uh, wasn't necessarily as supportive, but still the laughter was there. The applause was there, albeit not to the great extent that was the case in Cleveland.
0: The candidates this year are also trying to create meme-worthy moments.
2: The last two nights that we've looked at, the last two debates, second cycle of debates, as we saw laughter being used a lot more, and I think part of it is, is that certainly you want to get your audience on the side. But beyond that, once you have these great quips, they turn into meme-worthy moments, which I, I think to a great extent, the second screening approach where people are on their phones while they're watching the debates and they're sharing these moments and they're tweeting about it. Is becoming more important so i think that if you're a front runner this is very important it's now more important than was the case previously with a slow news cycle when you're trying to work your way up uh, into the top tier is that you'll use these meme-worthy quips to move forward and we've seen it with both bernie sanders when he talked about that i wrote the damn bill and we saw it with Elizabeth Warren with her comments on why would you run for our presidency if you're not going to change things in the first first night but we also saw on the second night with one front runner who really has raised his star which is Cory Booker when he's talking about dipping into the Kool-Aid and something that was said about in his neighborhood and this this was an incredible quip for a lot of different reasons First of all, it got the audience response. It was a meme-worthy moment.
0: Porter agrees that primary debates may matter more than general election debates, as voters don't get obvious party cues.
1: As you know, people's views in a primary election are are more fluid. They're not voting just on party ID. If they're voting in the primary, their party ID is is, is more solidified. But whether or not um, it's solidified enough to withstand you know, barrage of of critical post-debate coverage. I think is it remains to be seen. The other thing to keep in mind with 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 primary debates is that there's so much more intra-party fighting that goes on al- along the sort of, you know, at the at the at the border. Sort of not at the border. At the, there's a lot of intra-party fighting about detailed policy matters, right? That I'm not sure are particularly appealing to most voters. You know, the thing that's, you know, stands out about presidential debates in the the general election season is that there's not much in the way of unpredictable policy disagreement. Both candidates go through, you know, a rather rote list of issues that they disagree with rather predictably. That's not really the case in primaries. It would be interesting to know if post-debate coverage could interact with policy discussions, that occur on stage
0: during primary debates. Stewart says a once invisible primary competition now plays out on television.
2: It's not so invisible anymore. With the 24-hour news cycle and the need to provide entertainment for the masses and to make money off of it, the political debates that we have, especially ones with presidential candidates, are increasingly popular, very popular. I would say, to a certain extent, they are augmenting sporting events.
0: But Porter still worries debates may have less influence in the real world. Are are most people
1: watching the debates for 90 minutes and then watching 30 minutes of post-debate coverage on Fox News or MSNBC? No, definitely not. People are watching a few minutes, they're catching a glimpse, you know, they might turn it on and off. Although, that having been said, you know, we would argue that, you know, our results are more realistic than you know you know compelling students to watch uh, a debate in a classroom or you know getting subjects to watch a debate in some kind of laboratory um, precisely because it's very likely that our subjects were also distracted right we had no control you know maybe people turned the channel right maybe people put it on mute when their kids came in right we have no idea that more closely approximates how people actually watch these debates our, our study with that in mind you, you know you might think of it as like a, a study that's capturing like the the, the, the ceiling of what these networks post-debate coverage shows can do, right? Like, what can they actually do in the real world when we've got reason to believe that people are watching them? Like, what are they actually shifting? And they're shifting some candidate evaluations, but they're not shifting votes, right? So again, you know, I sort of harken back to the beginning of, of our conversation, right, where, you know, the media and members of the public Sometimes assert that media coverage can, you know, make a Democrat a Republican and vice versa at at the ballot box. And we don't have any evidence of that from this study.
0: Debates can change impressions, but at least in his study, perhaps not votes. The effects are all pretty small,
1: but they're significant and substantial, which, you know, suggests that there are like different registers or different levels upon which people are evaluating debates. One, you know, and again, this is speculative, but but might help sort of structure our thinking, right? And, and you know, one one level of evaluations might just be, you know, along along these sort of micro questions. Were they persuasive? Did they avoid costly gas? Were they presidential, right? And you know, these these specific items, right, maybe they have an effect on this bigger issue of how did my guy or gal do? Right? And, and that's sort of a, a deeper issue. And on this second level, on this deeper level of how did my person do, you know, there's maybe a weak relationship between uh, the first level and the second level. There's also like a third level, right, which is the most important level to candidates, right, which is, well, am I going to change my vote, right? Because that fundamentally is what candidates are trying to do. They're trying to win over voters, right? They're trying to get people to go to the polls. And this level, you'd think, based on our evidence, is, is virtually unaffected by debates, right? So there might be minor movement and these sort of micro-issues. There might even be movement about, you know, preferences toward, you know, their sort of perceptions of who won. But on this deepest level, you know, it doesn't seem people are changing their minds about whom to vote for based on partisan media's depiction of debates.
0: Porter says Democrats may have made the right decision in not debating on Fox News.
1: Our evidence indicates that, you know, that's a wise position for Democratic candidates to take. I mean, a, a network like Fox is is wired in to support Republican messaging, just as a network like MSNBC has, at least in the past, been wired in to support Democratic messaging. Right? This can come in all sorts of ways. Maybe it's a question of who gets access, right? So. You know, in the, in, the, in the case of the, of the, the presidential debate that we studied, you know, Donald Trump wanted to shore up his his supporters' views. He had a friendly interview with, with Sean Hannity, right? You know, you could imagine a, a nightmare for the Democrats would be they go on Fox News, they have their debate, and then immediately after Donald Trump goes on and gives a rebuttal. That doesn't seem out of the question. And based on our evidence, you know, that might actually affect people's evaluations of the candidates, you know, I think, I, I think you know, the, the post debate spin can, can matter. It doesn't matter for the most important outcomes, but like in terms of evaluating candidates in a primary, it, it certainly could matter.
0: Stewart points out that reporters and scholars are still too focused on policy discussions in the debates instead of the impressions that voters get.
2: There's always going to be a role for the issues, but I think if we start from the baseline, that we humans are visceral beings. We're, our interactions, our visual interactions, we've got a larger visu- uh, visual cortex. The language that we learn is something that most people stop really focusing on language about the time they get up high school or college. As academics, of course, we're going to focus on the words. And I think that leads t- to a blind spot for us. A really important blind spot is looking at what other people look at. And so when I look at the nonverbal communication that goes on, it's a reflection of, you know, my experience coming from what is arguably a lower class, working class background and from teaching people at community colleges and at regional institutions where we dealt with people who were working class or in poverty. And seeing that what mattered to them was what they could see, not necessarily what they read.
0: He says audience response was one of the first signs of public opinion.
2: One of the important ways of looking at the elections that we have right now, especially the ones that involve so many different candidates, is that the audience is doing essentially what they have done for millennia. We could look at evolutionary history and suggest that the first vote were these observable audience responses, whether it's laughter, cheering, applauding, booing, and chanting. These are all ways that the audience, the public makes their views known.
0: Next, he wants to see if it can matter for money and poll movement in the primaries.
2: The next stage of my research is really seeing, well, can we predict the future of candidates? How long they li- uh, live in the race or actually survive in the race is probably the best approach to saying that by virtue of their ability to get laughter and applause. And is that reflected in how much money they make and their public opinion standing I think it's something that I referred to within the presidential studies quarterly piece in 2012, that laughter was a pretty good indicator. It wasn't an incredible indicator, but certainly it did play its role. But with such a large field, I think we have the opportunity to see what really is driving people's choice for presidential candidates
0: and this year's Democratic debates might provide a golden opportunity.
2: First of all, I'm going to be replicating and extending on on the study that I did with visual framing. That's a pre-registered report right now. What I'm also going to be looking at is how humor is utilized. I might have to extend it for the first two debates because what we've got is an incredible experiment that the Democratic Party put in front of us by, first of all, randomly sorting the candidates into upper tier and then lower tier, but then also randomly assigning them to different knights. So we've got an experiment going on there. Now, that's that's one of the things I'm looking at. But then some of the other things I'm looking at is the charismatic prowess of Ronald Reagan. And uh, this is really the start of the happy warrior approach. And it's one thing that was noted by Rahm Emanuel before last night's debate is that there is no happy warrior out there. But I think we've got our happy warriors are starting to emerge in this election. And I think Booker is definitely one of those candidates who has filled in that void.
0: Porter's next step is looking at the everyday effects of Fox News and whether misinformation can be corrected.
1: My co-authors and I, are really interested in further figuring out what are media effects like in the age of partisan media in, on, on television, and what are media effects like in the age of partisan media that actually exists in people's homes, on people's personal computers, etc. So what we're working on now is, is, is a further study of, of Fox News' sort of everyday effects on people's attitudes. And, for this study, we're not actually using a laboratory. We're not using a student sample, trying to have really sort of rapid, almost real-life conditions that we put people in when we have them. Uh, we try to measure the effectiveness of Fox News programming. That's sort of a, the short-term project related to this. I guess the other exciting thing, I've got a book coming out, uh, also co-authored with with Tom Wood and I. Tom Wood and I have a short book called False Alarm coming out with the Cambridge series in American Elements in American politics series, where we just talk about claims about Americans' factual receptivity in the in the Trump era, and in fact, we ran an experiment for this book on the same night we were running this debate experiment. You and I have talked about. So we 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 doubled up, and in in that book, we, we find basically that even Trump supporters are receptive to factual corrections of Donald Trump. Overall, Americans are receptive to factual corrections. And yet this receptivity, as measured by the post-treatment accuracy increases, do not affect, you know, who they're voting for, what policies
0: they support. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Ethan Porter and Patrick Stewart for joining me. Please check out Presidential Debates in the Age of Partisan Media, and please clap and then listen in next time.